Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, we got an ad. It's from superyaki.com. If you haven't been there yet, you really should go. It's this really cool website. You can go there. They have shirts for really great movies, also bad movies, but you know, the movies that film Twitter says you shouldn't like, but they're a bunch of idiots because of course you like National Treasure. Of course you think Judy Greer is awesome. Of course you want pins with Sofia Coppola, which I think is down okay with film Twitter. And also Jordan Peele, definitely okay with film Twitter. Go to superyaki.com and buy your shit. I know Phil has a bunch of stuff from superyaki.com. I have a bunch of shirts. I've got a I've got a written and directed by Ryan Johnson shirt because I'm obviously a big uh, Last Jedi fan. Uh, they got great Crimson uh, Crimson Peak shirts, which is a fucking great movie that nobody talks about nearly enough. Uh, their shirts are really soft. They're eco friendly, water based inks. They ship with compostable poly mailers for environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. Uh, it's a great website. They're a great company. Uh, Karen Hahn, past and future guest, is uh, has a couple shirts that she's done with them as well, which is fantastic. Um, and as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with the code SUPERFRIEND, all caps, no spaces, at SUPERFRIEND at checkout. Can you believe this? You listen to our podcast and you get 10% off shirts and sweatshirts and pins and bags yep. from superyaki.com. This is a win-win yep. for everybody, and we get none of that. Zero. <laughs> um, it's superyaki. That's S-U-P-E-R-Y-A-K-I.com. See you at the movies. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's night.
Hello and welcome to Podcasts Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999, not from an abandoned warehouse, here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. I'm Phil Iscove. And this week we're talking about the Mod Squad, and I want to let our, our listeners in on a little little trade secret. Oh. I know if Phil is going to enjoy this episode, if Phil enjoyed this movie, by the look he makes when I make my opening joke. And the look <laughs> he made today was he backed away from the microphone, he had a frowny face, and he shook his head as oh. if to as if to say, why has God smited me I mean, with watching uh, the Mod Squad Again, uh, in, by the way. Again, in the middle of a pandemic, um, in the middle of social unrest in Trump's <laughs> America, all of this shit, and I have to watch the Mod Squad. So, so Phil, please explain your face. I, I mean, truthfully, I I don't know, man. I didn't I didn't actually I feel pretty um ambivalent about this movie if I'm being completely frank. Like Me too, man. <laughs> Like I, 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 it was one of those things where I mean, three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. That's that's a rough score right there. So I saw this in the theater. I remember being bored and just sort of uninterested in what was going on. And it, and I've never really thought about the film since, um, other than the fact when I kind of tried to develop my own Mod Squad television show, which, at one which point. I'd like to talk about. We will talk about that, but because um, uh, it definitely, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, I, I just it was, it was short. Thankfully, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, this movie's like basically 90 minutes on the nugget. Um, I, I guess I also and you'll see it in my score a little bit. I mean, it's, I don't obviously score this film well, but I mean, it's a good cast. Like, it's not it, the worst film. No, no, no. It's not it's a good just movie. Not. It's no, it's like. Uh, <laughs> it's I said it on Twitter. Yeah. And I believe it. Like yeah. the script is blah, and the direction is blah, and it makes for a blah movie. Yeah. Either one of those things uh, elevate, yep. you know, to any 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 kind of inspirational level, it becomes a pretty good movie. And with both of those things, it can, it can become a great movie. See, I, I I compared it to SWAT, which I think was a very good totally movie. fair. Yeah. 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 Um, now, granted, I never saw the SWAT TV show, so I don't really know, but yeah. I don't think it matters. I think SWAT was a was a very good, propulsive action mm-hmm. movie, and uh, I think that um, Miami Vice is yes, just sure. – it's a very good movie, but there's – it's not quite the same because it was directed by the same guy. Well, that's a tone piece. Guy. That's not really a <laughs> – I mean, it's not really fair to 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 basically have Michael Mann update his own work, <laughs> however he wants to update it, and then have fun with it that way. But um, but I think both of those, those are <clears throat> both of those are good comparisons because I think that both of them show, like I don't think that SWAT is a visionary movie, but SWAT is very effective at knowing what it's going for. This movie kind of wants to be like out of sight in a weird way like it kind of wants to be this like i get that cool hip movie it's not but it's trying to do that and then and then jammed into it is 
I mean, the last third of this movie is straight out of an episode of the Mod Squad. Like, it feels like a 1960s procedural at the end where, like, people just do things that you just wouldn't do. Like, it's all just very sort of um, – it's clunky. So, like, there's just a lack of, of um, definition I, of definition and style. Yeah. You know, the thing is, like, the mods are the mod squad, and they start this movie with a fucking definition of mod and then a definition of squad. It's but, ridiculous. Now, fr- frankly, like, I think we, I, I, I think a definition of mod is not so ridiculous. Now, you don't want, I don't want to really see any movie that has a straight up definition of anything. Anything. Um, but a definition of mod is, is fair. And, you know, mods are essentially like, I guess 60s counterculture kids, yeah. but not like, but, but very, very British influenced. We're not talking about hippies. Very we're stylish. About like stylish, cool kids. You know, you're talking about fucking Carnaby Street. You're talking yep. like, uh, like, like cool kids. So it does kind of lend itself to a, a, a certain style. It allows a director to bring to it an unusual style for 1999. And what this did, guy did instead was strip it of any style and just kind of wash it in like in like uh, dark colors and chrome and filth and made it kind of as miserable as possible. Now, I got feelings about the Mod Squad to begin with, like. I just don't think you. I, I I can't think of anything a little. I can't think of anything less inspired than a straight up remake of the Mod Squad, which is why I love Phil's idea so much. <laughs> I did. I always loved your idea, and I think everybody missed the boat on it. Well, what I do you think? That. Uh, well, yeah, I obviously agree. But I, I mean, I, I think that, um, and I said this on Twitter. Uh, I stand by it. This is just a, a real missed opportunity. Um, this is. The type of thing where, and we should talk about sort of, and we will talk about the kind of TV movie reboot thing that happens from time to time and certainly had like a swath of them that came out within, you know, about a decade. Um, But, you know, the thing about those old television show premises was that they were very clean. They were very simple for the most part. um, And they're a great launching pad, right? So you can do kind of your winky meta versions of stuff where, you know, you're Starsky and Hutches and you're what have you's where it's a little bit sort of like campy. But then because these things are so are so clean, you really can use it as an opportunity to reinvent and do all kinds of cool shit with it as well. And this is neither fish nor fowl. Like this is just kind of in some sort of middle space because it's clear that Scott Silver, who who was one of the writers in the film, and and this is one of his two directing credits, and we should definitely talk about Scott Silver. Um, <clears throat> this film just sort of feels like, you know, he kind of shot it like a Soderbergh movie a little bit. It's very kind of monochromatic. It's it's got that kind of gunmetal kind of blue vibe to it, um, but. He doesn't really direct the actors either. They seem to be like they're out to sea a little bit, like they're just being left to their own devices, which as a viewer, when you feel that, I guess, and and this is something I kind of wanted to ask you as I was watching it, but like when you're a viewer and you're watching a film that that clearly doesn't have leadership, Mm -hmm. as a viewer, you disengage because you're like, well, there's no one helming this ship, right? Like I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm just watching a bunch of random scenes kind of put together and and 
And that's disappointing. And that's maybe the most overwhelming thing about this movie. Are you talking about leadership in terms of the context that there's no leader of this group? Or are you talking about in terms of the direction? I'm in terms of production. Yeah. So I think that – all right. So I kind of want to talk about both those things though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes. When there's no point of view, when there's no strong point of view about what's happening, of course, you're you're, you're a a ship adrift. Yeah. Completely. And kind of the, 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 the bigger problem, I think, is when you feel like you don't have a captain, then you start to worry that they don't know what they're doing and you yeah. don't trust their decisions anymore. That's yep. the biggest problem. And, and, you know, with all due respect, you know, to Scott Silver, he's not Steven Soderbergh. And I don't mean he's not Steven Soderbergh and that he doesn't have his acumen, he doesn't have a style. Like, I trust Soderbergh to land the plane every time. And when he doesn't land the plane, I get a little, you know, frustrated and I wonder, well, yep. what happened here? But at least, you know, I'm with him until the credits sure. roll. Yep. It's hard on, you know, essentially your first feature uh, to, to to get that kind of trust with the audience, particularly with a, particularly with a, pro- a uh, particularly with a project like this based on a property that people have absolutely no connection to. The, yeah. the audience for this movie obviously was not people who watched the show. You don't you don't cast it people, and these are three it people, in a, young it people. They're all they're probably twenty one between twenty one and twenty seven. Yeah, early twenties. This yeah. movie, you're not casting these three people if you're trying to pull in you know fifty year old nostalgia people. Like I think my my favorite Martian was trying to do, for instance. Yep. Uh, my favorite Martian was trying to pull in parents who watched the show. Uh, mm-hmm. And bring their kids. This like this is trying to introduce the Mod Squad to a new, to to a new generation. So there's that. The other thing that you didn't say, but you know, you know, spurred something within me is mm-hmm. I think there's also a problem when you don't have leadership within the show, within w- within the context of the movie. You need to have a dynamic that is yep. alpha beta. You need to have a dynamic that is. This person is the person who has is, is ultimately in charge. And whether or not they ultimately are the ones making the final decision, that's for the screenwriter. But you have to have some kind of hierarchy so the audience knows what to expect in every single scene. Three equal parts don't really work. Now, a movie I remember I, I can think of where where it, it's all about leadership and hierarchy, nothing to do with this movie, but is uh Crimson Tide. Have you seen Crimson Tide? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gene Hackman, Denzel Washington. Yeah. That movie works because you know what the hierarchy is. And the point of the movie is that you're going to subvert the hierarchy, right? That the hierarchy in this particular situation is breaking down. But I don't even know which character I should be trusting to make the right decisions. Which character is the moral center of this movie? Which Mm -hmm. character actually knows what they're doing Mm -hmm. or thinks they know what they're doing or has taken the reins of this group? I can't think of a movie or a situation where you have a group of three, four, five, and there's not a leader. Well, I want to I, I fully agree with you and I kind of want to piggyback on it because I do think that the, the movie that I think you kind of have to point to for good or for bad is Charlie's Angels, right, which was obviously a big hit. Um, it uh, similarly had three three leads um, and, and if we're being honest, had a somewhat similar premise, right, which is mm-hmm. three girls that are taken uh, out of um, I don't know that, that their lives were necessarily in a downward spiral, They're but not criminals. What, yeah. They're but it's a somewhat like, similar conceit. It's kind of like an alias vibe in that to me, yes, which is like yes, we've yes. identified you guys as people with certain yes. skills, and we're going to yeah. take you now, right? If we use them, the for show 
the mod squad for what it's worth. And this is one of the, I think the major problems with this film is that the show at least gave us a little bit of backstory. It explained mm-hmm. what these three characters they made a did. By not doing that here. It's, it's insane. Um, understanding at least how they got to this place in their lives. And then on top of that, each of them had a skill set. Like each of them were specific in terms of like what their skill sets were to each of their missions it's it's basics like this is 101 like they do that in charlie's angels in the first 30 seconds they explain to you what the three women and what their different skill sets are um this movie doesn't bother doing that so from the jump i'm just like how did they get here why did they get here why are they a part of this team how are they helpful to the police in any way shape or form so so let's get into the 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 basic assumptions i think this movie made that were bad (laughs) <laughs> um the the first one is that the mod squad is as well known as charlie angel charlie's angel which, it's which not. is just which just wasn't true <laughs> i can't tell you who the three members of the mod squad were i think one, like clarence williams the third but that was only because like in some other well peggy lipton was was the peggy the biggest lipton of the bunch. yeah they uh but i i don't know much about the mod squad i know every i know all three angels and i know like that Farrah Fawcett was replaced and I like yeah. um so there so that's one two and you know the name Bosley and you know yeah. Hello Angels and you know the premise of that movie and the theme really song well. and, the and like theme that theme song, music yeah beautiful theme music like Charlie's yeah. Angels did permeate the culture for years and years and years and years Mod Squad didn't so that's, that's why we've had one. three movies and how many pilots that they've tried to fucking make of Charlie's Angels well, they, in the last they, 20 they years show I know it's a show with Minka too. So like the actual yeah. actually was a show on the air. Like, yes, Charlie's They've really Angel, tried. Charlie's angels. Yeah. Ha, is a property. Charlie's yes. angels. I don't know who owns it, but Charlie's angels is a property for that studio that they're constantly trying it's to make more yeah. money out of. And I understand yeah. why, like it worked mm-hmm. incredibly well with the Drew Barrymore, yep. Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu uh, incarnation. Um, yep. And I get it. So, and we, that's 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 assumption one that mod squad equals charlie's angels Assum- <laughs> i'm just i'm laughing at that assumption. yeah and that's, i mean that's it's, pretty, it's it's crazy i guess that's i guess that's pretty much the 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 major <laughs> assumption that's that's i think everything can kind of get wrapped into that assumption because the other thing they they did was they assumed that people understood and i guess it's the same thing but it's not that people understood the premise going into it that people understood what happened what happened naturally like every time superman is rebooted there is a uh an argument whether or not to do an origin story or have superman show up fully formed and i understand that argument because everybody understands superman everybody understands superman and it's not necessarily important to do his origin story and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't same with batman you know now people have like serious like you know alley fatigue you know like outside the theater because we've seen it so many times in so many different incarnations so many times you have to show the origin of these characters in mod squad Okay, yeah. you have to show it, and you want to see it. It is the best part of these characters. I want to you have to see it for the arc. You have to. Okay, that's that's part one. And they can I just I want to stop you real quick just to say they almost do it. Like they, well, they almost do the fucking Charlie's Angels thing at the beginning where they where he says, like, I you know, this is what this person yeah, did. Dennis this, Farina, but yes. they but they don't do it. They go like halfway. 
I'm like, what are you doing? Anyway, sorry. I know. And you could have accomplished it in three minutes with a great song, with boom, 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 yeah. with, you know, a Lucia Silverstone in the crying video, kicking someone on the street. And then there you go. You have Claire Danes and I get it. Okay. Th- the, the next thing that you alluded to, that is the biggest 101 shit possible. They all had skills, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Claire Danes' skill is assault. Um, <laughs> Giovanni Ribisi's skill, I believe, is robbery. And Omar Epps' skill is arson. He's an arsonist. <laughs> okay. So, oh, like, fuck. we never, I think we do, like, get a little of Claire Danes kicking ass. But, like, being arrested for assault and being an ass kicker, two very different things. Right? <laughs> Yeah. Being a yeah. being a snatch and grab robber and being a heist man, two very different things. And yeah. like most of the time, arsonists are crazy motherfuckers burning shit down. And yeah. I suppose there could be a, a good, you know, application of arsony, but uh, or arson, arson. excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> or larceny, either one of arson. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, I'm sure there could be a good application of that. Like if you just made him a. If you just, geez, if but, you just made him a, if you just made him a, um, a, a bombs man, like a, like a, like a, Alex, like, like a explosives guy, then I got something Then I know yeah. we can, we can work with this character, but they don't, they're, they, they're, they just turn well, into cops. Bad here's cops. the thing in the show, there was a little bit. And, and again, I, I mean, in, in my pitch, I ran with this as well, but like Julie, uh, Julie Barnes was more of a sort of uh, Sydney Bristow type, could disguises and 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 was able to sort of like was more in in a way to be able to sort of infiltrate and do undercover work, which they t- sort of hint at in this movie, but don't really when she becomes an undercover prostitute waitress. But shocker, put that aside. Um, you also had in the show you had like, if I'm not mistaken, Link. Lincoln, uh, his character was much more sort of tech savvy. Like, again, it's not hard to do this, guys, to differentiate these characters by giving them some sort of skill set. I also just would say, too, that, like, they're kind of hamstrung by the premise in the sense that they don't really use any weapons. These people are are somewhat underage. So, like, it's they're they're kind of trying to play in this slightly weird moral gray zone of like not wanting these kids to be doing things that are too illegal. So like there's no drugs and there's no sex and there's really no weapons. Like it's all sort of oddly. This is well, and to some degree the movie too, because like kind of, they kind of don't really go full force with it. Right. Like there is an R rated version of this movie that could have been cool. Right. Like the full on R rated embracing, you know, um, the, the sort of dark seedy underbelly that these kids might very well have been a part of. But instead, obviously the studio doesn't really want that. So there's sort of, it's, it's, it's kind of neither here nor there. Like it, it makes me think about like, you mentioned 21 jump street, if I'm not mistaken, um, in not one of your today, tweets, right? On my tweets. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's again, another version of this that is sort of elevated and layered and metatextual and understands itself this just doesn't really understand the source material, why anybody might have liked it, and also doesn't do anything new with it. Well, 21 Jump Street's a miracle, but like, the <laughs> it part is of it, it's incredible, but yeah. you know, 
the the biggest departure Twenty One Jump Street made from from the source material is like one of these guys isn't cool. Like just yes. like yes. end yes. of story. Like yes. one of these guys isn't yes. or wasn't cool. I mean, I know they they subvert that, but that one of these guys wasn't cool. One of these guys was cool. In Twenty One Jump Street, they're both cool, and like I get that. So and and then they're going to high school, and the whole thing works incredibly yeah. well. But these are all like these are like three pretty cool people. I think that yep. they're supposed to be certainly. Um, I'm never nervous for them. I never feel like they're they're out of their element. I never feel like I, I, I never feel like that. Um, I never feel like they don't know what they're doing. I never feel any dynamic yep. between them. I never feel any fun. I never. I and and the reason I keep kind of in my head conflating it with SWAT is because. That's SWAT. Like SWAT yeah. wasn't cool. It wasn't fun. It wasn't. It wasn't metatextual. It wasn't yep. any of that. It was just an action banger. Yep. yep. And this could have just been an action totally. banger. And yep. I just feel like if you're gonna go straight with it, have yep. a really strong script with really interesting turns. Because I do remember that there was a great turn in SWAT where half, half the SWAT team was against Colin Farrell's character in the end. Like, they turned. Really strong stuff like that. And said, so this is, like, all, like, basic one-on-one. How early did you know Josh Brolin was a bad guy? Oh my, the second he showed up. First of all, he's the Josh Brolin. The second he showed so up. Like, <laughs> he's got, he's immediately got this kind of energy about him. You're just like, well, he's a bad guy. Can I, I, I want to talk about the casting for a second here because I do think that part of what you're tapping into is um, a bit of a casting issue. So they went out to a couple people for, for Julie Barnes. Um, they went out to Sarah Michelle Geller, Melissa Joan Hart, and Mila Jovovich, all of which passed. Um, and then Claire Danes took on the role. I love Claire Danes. I don't have anything bad to say about Claire Danes, but she's not really right for this role. Um, I, I, I think I, I think when Claire Danes is bad, she's very bad, and I think she was very bad in this movie. I mean, I, I, she's, she's not really she's given... good. She's incredible. Like there's, it's just something yeah. about her that like, and, and it's not even like she plays this character or that character. She's incredible in Romeo and Juliet. She's incredible in Homeland. Two incredibly different characters. But when she is not not right for a role, like it's like it it. It's almost uncanny valley-ish. Like, yeah, I mean, listen, she's she is as we mentioned earlier, she's out to sea. There's there's no life preserver here. And and I, I don't want to kind of I don't want to pin it on her. I, I hear where you're coming from. Claire Danes has had an interesting career. She's had a lot of interesting kind of different types of roles. She's very specific. And I think that when it when it's when it it's right, it's very right. And yeah. when it's not, it's not. And this is just one of those things where, and you mentioned leadership, she's top build. You know, she is, she is definitely the sort of the, the front loaded character. This movie was kind of like the leadership, the leader within the movie. And that's a right. big problem. Exactly. Exactly. Then on top of this, you have Giovanni Ribisi, who I'm a big fan of Giovanni Ribisi. I, I generally speaking, I'm always a fan when he shows up on screen. I know he's always going to do something interesting. Um, and, and he's interesting in this, but, Again, he's this is early in his career, a director that clearly has not given him much guidance, has not given him yeah. much direction. Um, him and Claire have an interesting chemistry and an interesting dynamic. They have a scene deep in the film where they're sort of hinting at perhaps something romantic between the two of them. And there's something cool there in a different that movie. I liked in a different movie. But again, and then you have Omar Epps, who again, a very talented actor who's given nothing to do. These three Literally people. Literally nothing. 
nothing to do. These three nothing. people make no sense together in scenes together. Like they don't feel like a unit. They don't feel like they have any chemistry with one another. They don't click together. And that's a big problem. Which might be okay if you leaned into it, right? Sure. Like the sure. other thing is like I because they start this thing in media rest, I never get the sense of how yeah. you how they got together and whether they were okay with this or not. Yeah. I they treated it like a sequel where they had yep. already gone through all of their shit totally. and worked it all out. And yep. now we have three people who are on the same page and the conflict is not within the group. The conflict is external. Yep. Kind, I mean, I've, that's mean. It is. It's external. We have to solve this problem. Yep. And, you know, Giovanni Rubisi has to, like, make amends with his dad, I guess. And uh, sort of. So, I mean, like, it's kind of yeah. like, I guess, yeah, 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 you yeah, know, the yeah, one yeah, thing. Yeah. And... uh and it's it's boring, and I don't believe it, and I and that's not where I want the conflicts to lie. I want I, these three people are three sociopaths, or at least they're supposed to be, right? Yep. They're three criminals. So let's like let these like type A's battle it out, and then this is so obvious, dude. I, I, I this is like I obvious. It's so, stuff. it's so obvious. Yeah, it's like that's what I, bothers I me. It's like sometimes people when they make movies, particularly uh, based on IP feel like okay we have to reinvent it but you don't reinvent the basic shit you reinvent the fucking veneer around it you re you you change the drapes you change the carpet you change things that are you 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 could change characters from you know man to woman or alpha to beta or high class to high class high status to low status or things like that but the basic bones of a fucking studio movie shouldn't be changed they just shouldn't i i don't i hate being so prescriptive but like you just should tell the simple fucking story unless you're really fucking good well it's it's i i couldn't agree with you more it's one of those things where when this movie started i was like oh right like they don't they don't do any of those things the first half hour of this film should have been to your point Bringing the crew together, seeing the water and oil, seeing the friction, forcing these people to work together. Then eventually, and by the end of it, you're like, oh, I've watched a family get born. I've watched these three people been brought together. Also, on top of everything, there's really not enough story and enough plot to string across the 90 minutes. So, like... You you really have you might as well had spent that time doing your origin story for at least a little bit, and and when it didn't happen, I was sort of like, to your point, you you mentioned it earlier. Like, how many times have we seen Batman's parents get killed? How many times have we seen Superman land on Earth? And yet, with this of all properties, this is yeah. the one where they're like, we're gonna skip that shit. We're just gonna go straight into. You got this. <laughs> and you know it's interesting. You you compare it to Charlie's Angels, which really doesn't yeah. have an internal conflict within the group. Correct. Um, for what is like for better or worse, I have to acknowledge they did a really good job. Like McGee and John yeah. August, John yeah. August did the second or the first. He the first. They did a really, really good yeah. job of yeah. putting these characters on the same page uh, and having them solve a mystery, or having them, you know, defeat a villain that was worthy of their time. Yep. And compelling and interesting, but they also had other things on their side. They had three incredibly <clears throat> charismatic actresses in the right roles. 
they at the really like Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore, like like totally at the top of their games. Yep. Lucy Liu also like as mm-hmm. as high as she's ever going to get outside of Kill Bill. Um, you had Bill Murray in this movie. You had Sam Rockwell as the villain. You yep. had interesting locales. You had a huge budget. You had jokes. Yep. You know, and you had people like having fun and playing characters. So when I say like do it the easy way. Yep. Like, do it the easy way. Do it the simple way, unless you're really good. They just nailed it. They were really good. I also just, I mean, you you really hit on something that I think that Charlie's Angels does. The first one does really well. And I got to say, I mean, say what you will about about that movie. It holds up pretty well. It's still a fun ride. It's still one? a, yeah, yeah. I think the first one's great. I really yeah. do. It's, 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 you know, a candy colored fun ride. And this movie could not be more dissimilar. It's grim. It's dark. It's brooding. It's not fun. And I just, I just don't get it. Anyway, Phil, do you know that Charlie's Angels was after this? It was? Charlie's Angels. Oh, yeah, it was in 2000. That's so funny. Wow, we have to start this con- this podcast. We have this whole po- podcast over. You know, when we were started talking about it, I was like, Charlie's Angels, is it before this? And in my brain, I was like, it must be. So I guess they learned their lesson from this. I, I, I my, my assumption is they had nothing to do with each other, right? My assumption is... This well, Charlie's Angels out. must have been in production yeah. after this thing, you know, but yeah, yeah it comes out in, in October. I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was shot in 99. So what do, okay, so here's the question, Kenny. What's the first one? What's the first TV to movie reboot thing that sets this off? Because it's not fucking Mod Squad, right? Like, is there, it- yeah, no, I know, I know, I know the answer to this question. Is it? I know the okay. answer to this question a hundred percent. The one that the the one that made everybody think that this was a good idea because there were ones before. There was like, um, wasn't there was a there was like a Dragnet with uh yes with Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks and right? Ackroyd. Yeah, yeah, and there were other ones in the '80s like that. But mm-hmm. the one that made people think that this is a good plan, the Fugitive. Mm-hmm. The Fugitive oh, yeah. comes out. The Fugitive is based on a very—I don't know how popular it was, but it was very yeah. well regarded. The show, yep, um, something that got our parents very excited. Put mm-hmm. Harrison Ford in there, and nominated for Best Picture, won Best Supporting Actor, made hundreds of millions of dollars. The Fugitive was the one where they said, all right, let's go into our fucking libraries and see what we can do. I just rewatched The Fugitive a few weeks ago. It holds up like gangbusters. That movie is fantastic. But I'll also say, um, as I was watching it, I did a little bit of like, you know, uh, digging around on the Internet. I think it had five screenwriters. It had like five editors. Um, Tommy Lee Jones was convinced that it was going to be the end of his career. So like there were a lot of people that that as this movie is getting made, were thinking this is a bad idea. Then, of course, it comes out and it's the biggest hit. So. Yeah, well, I don't think I, I I think that, you know, the fugitive every once in a while this happens like the fugitive is a, you know, a feather in the cap of the studio system, just like oh, yeah. Batman 89 was a feather in the cap of the studio system. Sometimes and this is why they do it. Sometimes their committees really work well. You know, yep. sometimes you have a yep. really strong producer at the top. I think it was Culpelson in this situation. Yeah, it was Arnold yep. Culpelson yep. Yep. at the top. A yep. really, really strong, really smart producer guiding mm-hmm. the ship the whole way, bringing in really strong, really smart writers, a really good actor, and mm-hmm. making the right decisions over and over and over again. And it works. Now, people, 
I understand that people, particularly in Hollywood, hate this. Yep. I understand yep. why we why you would hate this, why writers especially hate this. But yep. I do think when you have, you know, a hundred million dollars on the line and you're looking to make five hundred million dollars, it's not the worst plan. Um I agree. And then, you know, I think I, that I, I also yeah, I mean I this is this is sort of one of those things where so the fugitive is is a, a really good call, right? That's ninety three. This is ninety nine. Now between ninety three and ninety nine, I mean, I think we had like a Flintstones movie. I think we had, sure. which is a little bit different, obviously. But um, you know, they kind of went to the well a little bit in that regard. Well, you Charlie's had, and Angel, the other the the other great one on the you know the complete opposite end of the spectrum is the Brady Bunch. Right? Oh, hundred percent. Yes, yes, yes. So yes. you have fugitive on yes. the like, let's play it straight as shit. Yep. And you have the Brady yep. Bunch in on on some like let's have the most fun possible with this property, and it works, um, man. That movie works. Both of them, they're incredible yep. movies, yep. like truly incredible movies. <laughs> so much fun, like they, they the tone yeah. is perfect. There's yeah. something about like the, yep. the 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 90s versus the 60s and that family and the the way they build it and and the stakes of the Brady Bunch versus the stakes of the real world. I absolutely love that movie. But you set the poles right there, right? You have mm-hmm. The Fugitive, which could really work. You have The Brady Bunch, which, which can really work. And then you have these movies that we're talking about that kind of pick a side, right? I would say Charlie's Angels kind of picked the Brady Bunch side. Yes. Uh, yes. Star Singing Hutch definitely picked the Brady Bunch side. Mm-hmm. 21 Jump Street definitely picked the Brady Bunch side. SWAT mm-hmm. picked the Fugitive side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have movies Lost in the Middle. Wild yep. Wild West, Lost in the Middle. <laughs> My favorite Martian, lost in the middle yeah, these movies yeah, yeah. that don't know what they want to be don't know whether they're yeah. bewitched don't know whether they're commenting on oh, the yeah. property and the world that brought this property about mm-hmm. or whether they're using the property as a launching pad because it's still modern enough mm-hmm. that you can build mm-hmm. a modern narrative on top of it like and and you never really know what these are gonna be until they happen like um well, I mean, there, I feel like there's another example of something that used a, a TV show as a modern launching pad in a way you wouldn't necessarily expect, but I can't think of it. I mean, I, I, I think that everything you're saying is absolutely right. There's There are a lot of these, right? I mean, we live in an IP you know, industry that's focused on IP. There's a lot of these. Um, this movie, to me, is – I mean, this movie cost $50 million – I don't know how this movie cost $50 million. I don't know where that money went. Um, it's not on cast, and it's certainly you don't really see it on the screen. It, it was a bomb. It would go on to make $15 million worldwide. Um, you know, it's also an MGM movie, and we're in a weird time in MGM. The other MGM movie, the big one, was, was Thomas Crown Affair, which was very successful for them, which also came out in 99, which we've talked about, um, which is sort of interesting. Two, tele, not, two reboots, I guess. Thomas Crown wasn't a yeah, television show, but still, TV, TV to movies. Uh, I mean, TV is to movies different than than a than a yeah. film remake. For um, sure, where you can go I, a lot of different directions. But I would say, you know, when you look at the three names that I mentioned earlier that were in uh, consideration for Julie Barnes, you're seeing three drastically dissimilar movies: Sarah Michelle Gellar, Melissa Joan Hart. Uh, Mila Jovovich, Claire Danes, those are four drastically different women. Um, I just, I don't know what kind of movie they thought they were making. I really don't. So the Sarah Michelle Geller version would have been interesting. It's funny that Sarah Michelle Geller 
in her um, film career, yeah, never played a character like Buffy. No, um, she no. It, so it would have been interesting if she leaned a little further into that action yep. heroine thing. Yep. Um, I I think I kind of know what the movie would have been. I think it would have been you know fifteen percent better with her in it. I um, I, I don't doubt it. Um, I you know this is this is just yeah. Sorry, go. I want to go through all three of them. So Melissa yeah, Joan Hart seems wild to me. I can't even begin to picture it. Yeah. Um, wouldn't mind seeing it because it's so crazy. And Amelia the Melissa Joan Hart version to me seems like you're going comedy, right? Like you're going straight up comedy. I, I don't even know. What the, like we we did we we did drive me crazy. Like I've seen Melissa <laughs> Joan Hart work, Melissa Joan Hart work. I have yep. to see it. I, I cannot even yep. get yep. my head around that. Yep. Mil- Miljovovich is the best choice. Yeah. Mila Jovovich uh, should have been this character and she would have kicked ass. I don't know if it would have been a good movie, but it might have got people to Mila, to Mila Jovovich um, uh, Resident Evil a lot yep. sooner. Yep. You know, it might have gotten her to the, the, the place Angelina Jolie was in the mid aughts the place Charlie Theron kind of is now which just is like a good place for her to live like mm-hmm. I I think so I think that that would have been my favorite piece of casting out of those four I I don't disagree with you um I mean I I like Mila I mean we obviously talked about her on the messenger that movie is bizarro um but you know she's great I I, I think that it's all of this to me feels like we're in in a weird way. We're sort of having our. Um, um, I mean, I guess we we haven't really announced it, but we do a game in a few weeks um, where we where we play with a uh, with a cover of uh, of the Hollywood issue, the nineteen ninety nine Hollywood issue of, of Vanity Fair. And I do feel like we're sort of having that conversation right now a little bit, right? Little of bit. like these are Two all the sort of like. It. Uh, so come of the, a couple of them are on it, but it's like these are all sort of up and comers. These are all people in their kind of early 20s and they're all about to pop or not. Um, and again, this speaks to the property and the potential of the property, which is you could have made stars out of this. Like you could have had a Charlie's Angel situation where you got on the ride with a bunch of actors that were right about to crest in a cool piece of IP. But Unfortunately, no one involved really hits hits the tone right. I would also we should talk about the script a little bit for a second here because there's three screenwriters. There's Scott Silver, Stephen Kay, and Kate Lanier. Um, Stephen and Kate, both TV writers, uh, both worked in TV before, um, and and ultimately you know went back to doing TV as well. Stephen Kay created uh, Covert Affairs. I believe he's still married to Piper Perabo. Um So. You know, I, I bring this up because I think that that's the easy play, right? Let's get TV writers to adapt a TV show, and I and I would I would argue that this movie needed a little bit of a kick in the ass rather than falling back on the television bones of it. I yeah. think what they needed was a reinvention of it. Um, and you know, Scott Silver, Eight Mile, The Fighter, Joker, like Scott Silver's no joke, right? I mean, this no. guy's got real fucking credits. Um, I just think that this hit at a weird time, I guess. It was very early in his career. He hadn't really found his voice yet. And, you know, if the Scott Silver that wrote 8 Mile wrote Mod Squad, we would have had a better movie. 
Yeah, and and you know those are those aren't so much the eight miles Eminem's life story, the fighters Mickey Ward's life story, Joker's Joker's life story, like he. <laughs> Joker is Joker's worked, life story. He's obviously worked with. He's obviously worked with source material before yeah. and or yeah. since, yeah. and uh, and he does a really good job with it. Like Eight Miles, a very good movie. The Fighter's a great movie. The Joker is better than people acknowledge, um, <laughs> because it's troubling. But you know, we'll never talk about the Joker on this podcast, uh, or just Joker. Um, but he, yeah, the guy is the the guy is is in demand for this type of movie. And I do think if you gave it to him now, he'd probably have a far more interesting take than, than what he did 21 years ago. You know, it's interesting, Phil, because like, if there's anything that's your lane, this is your lane. This is the Phil Iskov lane. Phil, for, for those of you who don't know, like Phil, Phil is like, he was the first person who figured out that you can take IP and, yeah. and I'm kidding, but like he was the first yeah. person I know who instead of sitting around and like just like racking their heads for like some something that, you know, came out, said, all right, let's let's find a property that I can modernize and make uh, and make a TV show out of it. And he did it so successfully with uh, Sleepy Hollow. And, you know, if you look at what you did with Sleepy Hollow, you didn't even do what Burton did. Wonderful, great Tim Burton. You did something yeah. completely different and new. And wound up becoming a four-season hit on Fox because it's different and new and exciting and not playing with, you know, and not taking the exact ingredients you were given and just making a reboot, doing something different. Now, you had a, a Mod Squad pitch that uh, I'd like you to, to you know, to pitch out a little bit for the listeners. And then I will go into why I think it's so good and why I think like this is the kind of stuff that I, I would like to see people do with yeah. IP in general. I, I mean, I think that, you know, when it came to, to the mod squad, you know, a lot of it had to do with I, I, my pitch came together, at least when I was coming up with it was, I guess, the second season of Sleepy Hollow. And, you know, again, there have been a lot of reboots. There have been a lot of CBS reboots and mod squad was on ABC, but it was owned by by or continues to be owned by um paramount cbs whatever viacom um and you know i I was sort of looking at at their properties and trying to think of a way in but ultimately my pitch i mean the 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 clean version of it anyway was genetically modified mod squad you know that that it was gen mod squad um and i i think that it, it gave you the opportunity to be able to sort of inject you know alias fringy stuff into the mod squad and be able to sort of build mythology out of it, build, um, you know, stuff out of, out of their, uh, ancestry and, and, you know, various sort of government experiments that they were a part of and all that kind of stuff. And it really just kind of, um, it, it, it expands the universe, right? It just gives you more stuff to play with. And it also felt like it modernized it and you could still have the old sixties cars. You could still have the old sixties aesthetic. Um, and you could kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, put a Tarantino Whedon esque spin on, on something that was, that was older. That was sort of the plan. All right, we'll be back with the podcast in a couple of minutes. But first, a word from our sponsor. That's right, we got a sponsor. 
Folks, do you love movies? The good ones? Even the bad ones everyone told you not to like? It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies so much that they decided to dedicate every waking moment of their lives to bringing you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts rightfully demanding a production of a third national treasure to comfy sweatshirts that reasonably serve as a call to arms for all those in support of making Judy Greer America's lead. They even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings your tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. And as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with the code SUPERFRIEND. All caps, no spaces. That's SUPERFRIEND at checkout. And if the spirit moves you, find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. That's superyaki, S-U-P-E-R-Y-A-K-I.com. Thanks for listening to that ad, guys. Now back to the show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And so what what I love about that, and I think that there is, you know, maybe a little something to to this podcast that occasionally hits on process and occasionally hits on yeah. you know kind of development is if you're looking at a property to update now my understanding phil correct me if i'm wrong is this kind of didn't go forward more because this property lives in a certain region of hell that is inaccessible by people uh, it, in the rights real became life. A, yes the rights were a fucking nightmare yeah so it's very hard to get the, the rights but you it's it's almost like there was a key here the word mod yeah um that you were able to tap into something turn that key open up a door to something that makes complete sense within this world and yep. modernizes it and i love I, they, so there's something that i love about this but you did this again when you sold um moreau to cbs which is an update of island of dr moreau now that's an, another interesting property because that is you know kind of known as this marlon brando disaster movie but all, <laughs> it was, it's a it's a public domain novel Correct. right the island of dr Correct. moreau is actually a public domain novel and if you take the bones of what Dr. Moreau is about, which is like, you know, human-animal hybrids, right? You have a lot to play with there that has not been played with that much. So that's one way to take IP, particularly this old, these older properties, find yep. a little twist on it that isn't, you know, necessarily – this isn't necessarily the like, let's comment on – 
you know, the, the, the property in its own time, like bewitched, um, or is it necessarily like, well, here are the bones for like high octane action thriller, but also you have little things like there is another way to kind of fuck with this a little bit. A really, really, really good example of this right now is Watchmen. Oh yeah. yeah. Within the Watchmen, there are all these elements there that allow you to expand the universe and tell the kind of story Damon Lindelof told. You yep. know, he did not fundamentally change anything from the graphic yep. novel. He just expounded upon it and made something modern and interesting in his, but without, you know, alienating. And, you know, to, to, to the point, Dave Gibbons came out. I mean, you know, you know, uh, what's his name? Alan, Alan Moore. Um, you Alan know, Moore. Alan Moore hates everything that when yep. anyone touches this stuff. Dave Gibbons came out and said it was brilliant, uh, which is high praise because I don't think he's ever said anything about one of his properties is brilliant like that. So I, I do yeah. think that, you know, the, the worst thing you can do when updating IP is just saying, OK, here are the same exact characters in the same exact situations. But now it's 2020 and uh, we have better cars. Um, what you can do is say, here's another more interesting way to to, to play with what I'm given that expands upon it, that builds upon the world that you were given um, and makes something really cool and exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you know, some of the best reboots, whatever you want to call it, um, are things that, that take what you know about this property and not just reinvent it, but allow you to be able to see it through fresh eyes. Right. I mean, the movie that comes to mind that I always kind of think about is, uh, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, right? Which is that mm -hmm. it takes a, a very well-known, obviously, piece of, of literature and funnels it through a whole new prism so that it seems like a completely – you're seeing it through completely different eyes. Mm -hmm. And – you know, that first of all, a lot of this has to do with the properties themselves. There's a lot of people that feel like you're doing a disservice, quote unquote, to the thing you're reinventing if you don't hem really close to it. And I would argue it's the opposite, right? I yeah, mean, I look at is. Sleepy Hollow and I say, you know, Washington Irving wrote this thing, you know, however hundreds of years ago. And it's so fucking good that we were able to get more juice out of it and find a whole new way into this thing. That's a reverence thing. That's not a, a, a disregard of something that's been done before. Um, but, you know, that's sort of, I don't know. Um, I'm going to give a synopsis of, uh, of the Mod Squad. Um, Julie, played by Claire Danes, is on her way to jail for assault. Arsonist Link, played by Omar Epps, is looking for looking at serious prison time. And Pete, played by uh, Giovanni Rabisi, is about to get sent away for robbery. Unexpectedly, a Los Angeles police captain named Adam Greer, played by Dennis Farina, makes them a deal. If they agree to work as undercover as an undercover unit investigating drug dealers who prey on teens, Greer will wipe their slates clean. A tragic turn of events quickly ends. Julie finds sorry, Julie, Link, and Pete working to clear their names. Uh, again, mentioned earlier, written by Scott Silver and Stephen K. Kate Lanier, directed by Scott Silver. The Mod Squad was released on March 27th, 1999, in fourth place with $21 million behind Forces of Nature, EdTV, and Analyze This. It would go on to make $15 million worldwide on a $50 million budget, and the Mod Squad has 3% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 17% from audiences. Uh, Roger Ebert said... 
Mod Squad is an, has an intriguing cast, a director who knows how to use his camera a lot and a lot of sly humor. Shame about the story. When you see this many of the right elements in a lame movie, you wonder how close they came to making a better one. The yeah. director, Scott Silver, co-wrote the script himself and has to has to take some of the blame. This is a classy production and deserves better. What I'd love to know is how the screenplay got green-lighted. This is a top-drawer film with a decent budget and lots of care about the production values. The cast is talented and well-chosen. The movie is even aware of potential cliches. Before the last shootout, Julie says, at least it's not going down in an abandoned warehouse. And then where do they end up? The most expensive Nancy Drew mystery ever filmed. Um, I, I think that uh, he's right. I mean, this had the pieces. It's just It all just kind of didn't click. It just didn't come together. Because of the script, right? Because of the script. It, it, because of the script. How did the script get greenlighted or greenlit? Um, I, yeah. uh, I couldn't agree with it more. I just, I, I think he's, you know, I think he's dead on. What, what's interesting to me is the three percent on Rotten Tomatoes because, yep. you know, three percent you associate with a c- calamity like Love Calamity. Sticks. Yes. Right, like something that just no one in the right mind would go, in, go leave that movie and say that was something I'd like. This feels to me like everybody, anyone who would go see this movie would say, yeah, C minus, you know, yeah. Mm, yeah. C minus, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, eh, yeah. C minus. But like the the fact that 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 literally ninety seven percent of critics came out and said, eh, C minus, instead of like F, because this is not an yeah. F. You can't call this an F. No, you know, and 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 that virtually no one went eh, B minus. Is crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Far from the worst movie we've done this year. Far from the worst movie. We've far, done far, far from it. Um, I, I, I want to mention one other thing that I think is interesting. Um, apparently, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris were offered the chance to direct the film. Saw that, yeah. Um, I really like Dayton and Ferris. I mean, I think uh, Little Miss Sunshine is great. Um, I liked uh, Battle of the Sexes. Didn't love it, but liked it. Um, I think they're really interesting filmmakers. Um, mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen their version of this. It's a very different movie. Um, it's a movie that probably hems closer to 21 Jump Street um, in the sense of them being very sort of, uh, you know, they started in music videos. Um, there's a lot of metatextuality to their work. Um, I'm big fans of theirs. I would have liked to have yeah. seen their version of this. Um, but, you know, I, my guess is ultimately they read the script, right? And they were just like, it's not here. It's not on the page. Like, I don't, I don't know what we do with this. Um, so anyway, in 99, you know, in 99, they, they were doing, um, music videos. They, they pretty much yeah. were doing hard music videos, right? They, yes. they were, yes. they were doing rock. Yes. And in 99 they did, uh, and it's, it sounds like a joke now, but they did freak on a leash, which was corn's <laughs> music video. Sure. Sure. Which, um, which was the matrix of music videos. Yep. If it, it I, th- I believe it followed a bullet throughout the entire video used right. a lot of the technology that used in Terminator 2 and the Matrix uh it dominated TRL um it was it was a big video and it's kind of funny that these people who basically did you know videos mostly from from hard rock bands like Chili Peppers and Corn and Offspring yeah. and Smashing Pumpkins not so hard but still they did a Ramon video they did Megadeth they did they yeah. did you know extreme wind up doing little miss sunshine but. you know it's i'll say this my, my favorite videos of theirs are the smashing pumpkins videos you know 1979 tonight tonight um these tonight, are tonight classic spectacular yeah video. i mean it's they they, it, they are 
they're filmmakers, right? I mean, they really this are. is not anything new, but if you, you know, obviously your David Finchers, your Spike Jones, your Michelle Gondry's, your Chris Cunningham's, you know, these are filmmakers that cut their teeth in music videos. And um, Dayton and Ferris are, are, are absolutely in that group. And um, my guess is ultimately they read the script for Little Miss Sunshine and they were just like, it's a, it's a great script, right? Like it, yeah. it won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Um, it's so not a flashily, no. flashily directed movie. No. They're 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 obviously they're they're obviously top notch filmmakers. They should be doing more stuff and be given they and they should have been given more kind of big shots. Like off of Sunshine, they did Ruby Sparks, which they wrote. Battle of the yeah. Sexes. Yeah, and that's the list. Like, well, yeah. They they are also they've done some television work, but um, they're very picky. I, that's not a I shot so. against them, but they I, I don't know if they're still at UTA, but they certainly were there when we were there. And I remember that um, you know they just they, they, they really they, wanted you know they didn't they really write Ruby Sparks. Thing. That was Zoe Kazan, right? Sorry, Zoe Kazan yeah, wrote it. Yeah, yeah. But you know I, they, they I, I think that they were attached to a bunch of things that just didn't come to fruition. I believe they were attached to an adaptation of the Tom Parada book, The Abstinence Teacher. At one point, like mm-hmm. they've, they've. I, I think that this is a symptom of, and you know this better than than we all know this, obviously, which is um, development sucks, and you can spend years in a fucking weird, you know, cyclone of development and then it never happens. Um, and, and then years get by, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden you're like, fuck, it's been five years since I did a thing. Um, yeah. and I think that that might very well have happened to, to Dayton and Ferris as well, but they would have been an interesting choice for this. Um, but it didn't happen. I mean, ultimately we've, we've talked about a lot of the plot of this movie. I think we just, I want to kind of just hit a couple things along the way. Uh, this, uh, this has a deep bench of great character actors in this movie. Mm-hmm. Dennis Farina, Richard Jenkins, James Brolin. I mean, these are people that are, Josh that are Brolin. fucking great and they're just not weaponized with a good script. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, and it's just, it's, it's wasted. I think about the scene and we'll talk about it, I guess, later as we get to the, into the deeper into the plot, but you've got a scene where these cops are all just like huddled in the backyard of, of one of the guy's houses. And you're just like, you've got a fucking gaggle of amazing ca- character yeah. actors. And you're just like having them say t- shitty dialogue about like a bad drug deal. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Right. I, I, you know, I, 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 Richard Jenkins, never bad, ne- not bad in this. Never movie, bad, for sure. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I don't really want to see him in this role. It, it, no, like at all, <laughs> right? And I, I, I just don't. I mean, he's the villain, right? He's, he's the villain, and I just don't. Really One of them, see sort of. That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love Farina. I, I just, I just fucking love that guy. Like, what, what a great actor. What a great presence. What a mm-hmm. terrible loss. You know his story, right? You know, he was an act, uh, he was an actual cop. Yeah, yeah. And then and Michael was Mann was like, sec, yeah. he was an on-set consultant. And I think yeah. someone was like, yeah, let's give you a <laughs> shot. It's pretty cool. I mean, it's really cool, but it's also just like it makes total sense, right? Like he's just the roles he plays are so perfectly suited to a guy who used to be a cop. But it's so funny because he also often plays a gangster. Right. Yes, yes. He plays. He, he does those. Shorty. He, he, yeah. yeah. He does. Which he's amazing in. He's You're telling so me this guy's not a fucking trained actor. 
they, they, unbelievable in that movie. Yeah. Like unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. That's a fucking yeah. Coen Brothers character. Yes. Like yes. so good. That's yeah, a yeah. Coen Brothers character before Fargo, by the way. That's 95. Fargo is 96. That mm-hmm. is like that is I'm not that like, you know, there's certainly characters yeah. like that Barton Fink and Hudsucker and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But my God, like that's amazing. That performance. he is. Oh. He is tremendous in that film. Um, he is an axe Travolta off the screen. He, I mean, the the crazy because um, after he breaks his nose, yeah. he's got like that crazy fucking bandage yeah. and this crazy giant nose, and like just the 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 speech he gives about how the fucking sunsets are. What is it? The the they say the fucking smog is the fucking reason we have such beautiful fucking sunsets. Because you know, yeah. yeah. It's that, the such best. A good movie. Because the because the limo driver when he gets picked up in LA <laughs> says, you know, the smog is the reason we have such beautiful sunsets. And when he's beating the shit out uh, of the guy in, in Gene Hackman's office, he goes, yeah. you know, they say the fucking smog is the fucking reason we have such beautiful fucking sunsets. I love it. I love him. I love him. Don't I love him. I my love shoes him. is amazing too. When you've yeah. got the gun, <laughs> I, can, I can eat him up with a spoon. That guy. Ray Bo- Ray Bones? He's the best. Ray, Ray Bones. Yeah, yeah Ray Bones. Oh. Uh, Ray Barboni. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, He's great. And I, I also just, I mean, I, I know that it feels like we're beating a dead horse that, here. but just Sonnefeld? Un- yeah, Sonnefeld. Yeah. God, what a guy. Yeah. Sonnefeld had a fucking run. Yeah, he did. He had a run. It's just unbelievable. Um, Both Adam's Family movies, Get Shorty, uh, and then Mad, uh, Men in, in Black. Black. Like, what a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um. All that being said, and speaking I want to underline it. Speaking of TV, uh, TV to movies, Adam's Family yep. is another really, really good example. Perfect. Yep. yep. Um, and I, Adam's Family definitely does a little more like commenting. It takes place in you know our, our current society, but finds a real both of them find find a really strong. I almost think that that I, I believe they came before the Brady Bunch. I, I think that should be the the, for the poll instead of the Brady Bunch. Um. But Adam's family is, is also just something that permeated the culture a lot more than this movie ever did or ever could have. So sorry if I forgot I, that movie. No, no, it's I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I, I also think that Barry Sonnefeld's another guy who really understands the medium of television versus movies. I mean, he's mm-hmm. done some tremendous pilots. I mean, he did the Pushing Daisies pilot. He obviously recently did um, Lemony Snicket for uh, for Netflix. He's a guy who can make you a really big, beautiful world on a TV budget for the most part um, that I think is, you, is really impressive. Have you watched Lemony Snicket on Netflix? Uh, I watched a couple of them. I haven't watched all of it, but Dana Schwartz, very, big fan. Very good property. Like <laughs> the movie is really good and the TV show is really good. I, I, I was shocked. It, it's not something for me, but when my kids started watching it, I was totally engrossed. Um, but I want to just underline very quickly to, to rewind to the Dennis Farina of it all, because this just shows how this movie does not understand how good the actors are that they have and just giving them bad material. When Dennis Farina dies, spoiler, he dies in the, at the end of the first act of this movie. You don't see him it's get shot. Yeah. You don't see him get shot. You don't see any of it go down. They stumble upon his body. They feel a little bad about it, but not really that sad. And then there's this shitty shot and slow-mo of them walking away from his body, looking, quite frankly, almost indifferent to his death. This should feel like, holy fuck, this is the whole movie. This is what is moving and propelling these characters. We don't. He doesn't feel like a father figure to them. He doesn't feel like a, a giant loss to them. I mean, that is everything. It's because screenwriting and directing 101. 
because they didn't do the thing that they didn't do the thing that you're supposed to do. They didn't set up the movie. They didn't have him. They didn't have him visit each one in a prison cell. Say, yes. I'm going to give you your last chance. I see something yes. in you. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have him, you know, being the Bosley, actually standing in front of them and saying, all right, guys, like, I know no one believes in you, but I do. Um, I trust yes. you with this. They want to get rid of you. But he, 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 you, the thing is, I mean, you knew that he was their, their guy and you knew that he was, you know, kind of the, 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 the only thing preventing them from being thrown in prison to some extent, but you also got the sense that he didn't really love them anymore. Yeah. Like you all that he was already kind of over them. And I, I, I feel like that was just kind of a, a characterization at random. Um, like I believe that a guy could feel that way, but it doesn't propel our story. It doesn't set up what we're about to do. So I, I here's the other thing that they fuck up too. Not not to keep, you know, kicking the shit out of this movie, but one of the things I love about movie. movies like this it's no one is the point is it's no one's labor of love. Don't feel too bad about it. Sure. They don't even successfully land one of the the tropes or cliches of movies like this, which is open with them on a mission or sending them on a mission as a group, seeing him say, all right, guys, here's the bad guy. And here's the thing we got to do. And you take five or 10 minutes and you do Uh a fun fucking cold open, essentially where you just see them doing what they do so that you're like, Oh, I get it. But they're fucking bad at it. They don't do a good job. They don't stick the landing of making it seem fun and cool. So I don't want to go on another mission with these fuckers. So you're just like, it's crazy. I don't even know what the mission is. The mission is well, it's this undercover club thing, which is essentially the mission of the whole movie, rather than being a so one-off. Boring. Could it's you imagine? So boring. I, you don't want to be in that club. I don't want to see Claire Dane su- subjected to that. I don't even know what Omar Epps's role is in this. Like truly, I don't know what his role is. I don't know. Um, it's so ill-defined. It looks terrible. I think we you have nice like you have a scene at though. the beginning. Where he, where, where Farina is on like a rooftop with them, and he's like, "Okay, so you're gonna go to this club that has it's employing underage prostitutes or something to that effect, and I need you to pretend you're a waitress." And there's just, there's no like, it's, it's just, it's just not. That's set the up kind well. of, that's the kind of plot you put in when you're too afraid to do something more interesting. Yeah. Because like, yeah. all right, I like it's, it's, the, it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, underage prostitutes, that'll get people, you know, that'll, that'll, that'll get people's attention. Um, yep. but that's very boring and very rote. Um, and it doesn't exactly speak to the potential of these characters. It doesn't, you know, these, the, these are like proto hackers, right? The whole thing where you now have these little hacker geniuses who get recruited by the government and they're ill suited for their jobs but they only they can do it because they've been into the you know they they've been in the dark web and they've been in the you know the corners of the internet they know what they're doing it's that kind of thing that yep. we need it's that kind of thing it's why would you ever employ these fucking people in a plain clothes uh capacity if they're not particularly good at this what do they have and not it's not even a matter of like they have special skills which they should have they yeah. should have special access Mm-hmm. They should have know-how. They should have, okay, when I was a criminal, this is what I used to do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I know how criminals think better than you do. And mm-hmm. I also think they should have been better motivated. Like, yep. 
I'm not even sure what their motivation is outside of like having a job. Like they say like five times, like we're the cops, we're the cops. Okay. But like, you don't just put on a cop hat or a policeman hat or a uniform, which they don't. And now say I'm the cop. And that is now my, that, that is my constitutional function. No, you have to change, particularly if you're a, a, a child criminal. They also, unfortunately, a and bad movie. It's a bad movie, but they do something as well that's annoying, which is um, on several occasions, the cops don't believe them and they just yeah. seem like whiny brats. They just seem like yeah. a bunch of whiny little fuckers that are just like, but but that's not what really happened. Um, anyway, Julie bumps into her ex, Billy, played by James Brolin at this sketchy club. They make out in the bathroom. I don't know what she sees in this guy. It's gross and it's weird and it's sad. Um, I want to talk for a second about the score can we just talk for a second about the fact that it vacillates between being 90s kind of hip-hoppy drums and bass to straight up 60s tv score with like nothing in between so you just again don't really know how to feel about it you know it's so funny i i I wrote the score is insane sometimes it's an update (laughs) of the mod mod squad theme other times it's bernard herman and then it's synth and drum machines it's it's lunacy it's it's really all over the place uh you also have some needle drops bjork's alarm call plays for a second in the club which you know obviously made me happy lauren hill has a big needle drop at one point with everything is everything which is kind of great um yeah i mean basically julie kind of leaves the squad like it's it's every kind of shitty tropey thing where it's like the group breaks up and then a whole bunch of people try to kill the group one by one and they realize oh shit we all have to get back together because we have to take down the bad guys and the bad guys are dirty cops who are trying to smuggle drugs like it's all just very 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 rote um but at one point and i i just (laughs) billy and Julie break up. He shows up at her apartment with a goldfish. I don't know why that's supposed to be endearing, but I guess yeah, it is. Um, they obviously, they sleep together again. The next morning, he wakes up and writes his address on Julie's bathroom mirror in lipstick, which is one of those things that never happens. Yeah. Seems like it's kind of cool. Like, it's such a writery, shitty, this would be cool kind of thing. You know what I mean? Where you're yeah. like, yeah, he like writes it on her and you're like, but, but why? To what end? And be so that later she can smash the mirror that has his address written on it. We were just like ten, ten years after Who Framed Roger Rabbit made fun of that trope. <laughs> Let me guess: mirror on a lipstick? No, no lipstick on a mirror. Moving on. But it, it is. But it is true. Yeah. Uh, Julie discovers that Billy's a fucking pimp. Shocker. Uh, she blows up his car while emo, like an emo 90s song plays in the background. And then later, he doesn't even mention that she blew up his car. Like, he seems totally yeah. fine with the fact that she that she did this. Um, Pete goes to his parents' house, tries to explain to them that he was working for the police. His dad just laughs in his face, and his mom gives him some clean clothes with 100 bucks in it. <laughs> dad does just laugh in his face. He does. Um, Pete and Julie get a room at this beachside motel. And this is where we get the scene. I would argue perhaps maybe the most interesting scene in this movie is this little swath here. It's about like 10 minutes where where Pete and Julie, Claire and Giovanni, let their guards down, kind of let each other in a little bit, mm-hmm. talk about sort of how yeah. kind of sad and broken they are. Uh, they get a room with two beds. She climbs into his bed, not interested in sex, but just looking for comfort. And it's a nice moment. 
Um, and it shows what could have been with been. these great actors. Yeah. Um, Eddie Griffin shows up for no reason at one point yeah. <laughs> as, as Link's friend. Um, there's also another moment that I want to highlight that I'm curious as to your thoughts on. There's a moment where uh, Julie and Pete are waiting by Link's car for Link to show up. And Pete gets on the hood of the car and starts like, dan- like Giovanni does some like weird yeah. little dance. And I'm just like, that's the movie this should have been like weird little things like that. Like let these people do weird things. Like otherwise I don't know what the fuck I'm watching. I think that's, it seems like that's what Giovanni wanted the movie to be. Yeah. Uh, and he tried and he's, he's doing, he is doing a lot. He kind of has that like, like a very exaggerated, you know, kind of Giovanni uh, accent going on. But um, I, it, it felt wrong to me and it felt like, and, and he, for the most part, I don't love him as a protagonist. I don't love him as a good guy. Um, okay. I like him in Boiler Room for whatever reason. I think he's, you know, I think he plays that role kind of meek really well. Mm-hmm. But I don't like him like that. And I don't love it when he goes big. And I know he kind of winds up going big in Ted, but it's different. Um, I happen to love him in Ted. And uh, and I really like him in Avatar. Like I think that there's something about him playing, you know, slimy and sneaky and creepy and that stuff that he does really well. And I just don't think he has the. Um, I don't think he engenders the the empathy that uh, you need, except the Boiler Room, which he actually does really well. Yeah, I mean, I certainly felt empathy for him in Saving Private Ryan, but in 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 general, I would tend to agree with you that that he his. There's something kind of weird about him, which I like. You know what I mean? He's not sure. generic. He's he's very unorthodox. There's something kind of odd about him, which is why this is an odd casting choice. Um, you know, he but again, like I don't hate it. I don't I don't think that it's necessarily wrong. It just doesn't the script doesn't back the casting choice. Um Yeah, I think that's right. I love Claire and the Black Turtleneck, very 60s. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, basically the third act of this thing is. Can we get to the Michael Lerner part? Oh sure, (laughs) yes. Because this is like this is is, is the trope that I'm so happy is is dead. It's a very strange. So basically, what happens is they hear that the cops, uh, they hear the gang stakes out some cops' house. They Pete sneaks out, overhears the cops, records them on a dictaphone because, of course, um, and you know that that's very weird. You know, like clunky, like bad. clunky. You know, yeah. weirdly staged, weirdly, weirdly blocked set. Yes. You know, yes. like like scene. I, 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 I it's did very not odd. Be there, yeah. No, I didn't want to be there either. He sneaks up literally to like a wooden fence that borders the conversation and records the conversation, where they explain that they're going to use Billy, who knows a rock manager played by Michael Lerner. So they can smuggle the drugs through this band and their airplane. Did I get that right? I think there's yeah, something yeah, to like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Julia suggests she can get to Billy with Pete having her back, and Link is to go suss out the rock manager played by, as we mentioned, Michael Lerner. Um, the rock manager is this. I don't you know, Michael. It Lerner. feels like the shitty version. I know Michael. It feels like the shitty version of Saul Rubinek from uh, True Romance. Yeah, with like a lot of things that are just so much worse, yes. right? Like, 
I mean, it's Michael Lerner. Like, like I'll just start by saying that, right? Like we, we, yes. we've dealt with, um, who's the dude that we dealt with in the other Claire Danes movie? Oh God. Uh, Chaykin, Maury Chaykin. Yeah. Maury Chaykin. So we've dealt with, we, we've dealt with sexy Maury Chaykin already. I don't know if it was sexy, um, but it was Maury Chaykin. Sitting there shirtless like Buddha with his yeah. like, harem around him. Um, it's, it's, now- they're always wearing like, uh, they're basically wearing deep, uh, robes that show their their kind of hairy chest and their hairy chest, chains. but also their their yeah. yeah the chains and their pinky rings. And I don't know why anyone would want to play a role like this because they're horrible. Except Sal, and underage women seem to be also a big part of that as well. Under, women that well, are- yeah, and and he and he has this like over the top makeout session with this young blonde girl. Um, that's too much. And then he decides to slow dance with Omar Epps, which is just too much. It's like the whole thing is just like. In you know, it's a lot now, obviously because of like who that character kind of is in real life. Sure, but it it's a lot then. It's very yep. very off putting, and the the fact that that guy became a tropey character, an archetypical character in uh, in movies in this era, says a lot about where Hollywood was. I, I fully agree with you. I want to ask you a question because I'm I'm curious if you think that there's a connection here. But I, I couldn't help but watch this scene and think of the Alfred Molina Boogie Nights scene. Seems very different to me. I'm not in any way suggesting. I don't want to. I'm not trying to to no, no, denigrate no, no, go, yeah, the Boogie Nights scene. But there's a there's a. I think the slow dance thing. I think they thought that was menacing and and was creating tension. Like it's I not, think that it's not because it's Michael Lerner. I can't. I, like, I, I can't. I, I can't I, state I'm, that enough. Like I can't say that enough. Like it's Michael Lerner. I have seen him in so many movies. I know what this character does. What this actor does. So it's very, very weird. Um, but do you see the connection I'm drawing here? Like there does it. There is a time in a movie where you have a protagonist who's trapped in a scene in a box with a character that you're supposed to be worried about. Right, yeah. you're supposed to be worried for our protagonist, and in this scene, we're supposed to have that similar kind of tension. Now, admittedly, Boogie Nights is the best distillation of that. Right, you've yeah. got the fireworks and you've got the music, and like it's just it knows that it has you in the palm of his hand. Did this you, movie obviously does not. No, God, I mean, Boogie Nights is you know one of the best movies ever made, and one of my favorite yeah. movies of all time, and everything yeah. about it is is perfect. But you think about how simple that scene was because that scene wasn't in some respects that scene was set up throughout the movie. Right. But if you just saw this part from when Wahlberg and John C. Riley and Thomas Jane and Philip Seymour Hoffman are sitting in the apartment and they're running down what's going to happen, you will understand what's going on in that scene. These things are very simple to set up. Here are the stakes. Here's the person we have to do. Here's what it'll look like when it goes right. It's that simple. Um, this, even in its best incarnation, where I guess Alfred Molina plays the the, the Michael Lerner character, <laughs> still is apropos of nothing. It's sure. still apropos of nothing. This is not the guy that I am I am scared of. This is the guy that, and there's certainly no you know one bodyguard with a visible yeah. gun, um, sitting back and counting the you know the money and trying the fake shit. Oh, what a movie! But it's 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 it just all feels apropos of nothing. So, like, there is you know there, there's kind of a critical 
disconnect here when it when it comes to you know putting the elements together and 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 having them actually mean something because I of agree. what you've done throughout the course of the movie and what you've done in the third act to set up what's going on. I would also I would also argue too it's it's emblematic of how little they've done with Link up until this point in the film, right? right? Um, he, he obviously is just sort of, he's meanwhile in a different movie, you have this guy doing this thing. Um, he, he's, I mean, he's not even, and I, and this isn't a knock on Omar Epps or Link, but like the character has a job within this, this scheme that they're trying to pull at the end of this movie, which is to, uh, to get information to then relay to Julie and, and Pete, which I guess eventually he does tell them where, the airplane is about to land. So he, he is successful in that regard. Um, we now have a scene where and Julie and Pete. Real, real quick before that. And uh, it also bears mentioning like this is one of the most um, typical throwaway token black roles I've ever seen. It's pretty, um, the it's idea brutal. that he could ever potentially be Claire Dane's love interest is, is a zero. There's no shot. Never. Um, no characterization, nothing going on there for him. And, you know, this is this this feels like it exists to put. Um, I understand that you know, Link was always played by a black character, or a black actor, but um, this does feel like it's just to put Omar Epps on the poster, and they gave him nothing to do. His his only defining character trait is he loves his car, and there's a runner where Pete is like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I fucked up your car, but I'll get it fixed because I know a guy who." It was yeah, brutal. Yeah. Um, we then have a scene where Julie and Pete. Pete makes a "I'm too old for this shit" joke, and Julie says, "At least it's not an abandoned warehouse." And then they get there and they see that it's an abandoned warehouse, and. Then Julie says, "I'm too old for this shit. It's brutal." Um, and and I I I honestly felt bad for Claire Danes and Giovanni Ribisi to have to do this scene that is trying to clearly make a joke about the original show, but like there hasn't been any kind of allusions to that in the previous 85 minutes of this movie. So you're just like, "What are you now? You're pulling out this shit." Anyway. Um, Michael Lerner is managing a Hanson lookalike band that flies uh, in a plane that looks like it's straight out of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on an abandoned airstrip that I don't understand any part of this. I don't I don't know why. Like what? Why the Hanson joke? Why this weird oh, fucking it's awful. Thing? All that made me like, think of was, oh, that was terrible. That was like, that was as bad. It made as me think he was, a, uh, yeah, it's like this guy. Pedophile, so this guy's a yeah. straight up pedophile. Um, I was just like, I don't understand yeah. what they're doing here. Um, I, I do I do understand what they're doing. They're making a pedophile joke. Okay, cool. Um, then, uh, very quickly, the end of the movie is basically a str- the last act of an episode of the '60s show without any irony. It's just like it's it's just it's really just Pete plays the tape of the recorded conversation over the loudspeaker. All the cops hear it. It's that old fucking chestnut of like everyone hears what the bad guys did, and now the bad guys are caught. Uh, and then our team is sitting on the edge of an ambulance and one of the cops comes up to them and says, what are you, some kind of mod squad or something? <laughs> what did that even mean like, in 1999? What does that, that Who the fuck came up with that? It's, he's like, no, no follow you, guys, up. you know what you remind me of? Have you ever seen the show from the 60s, The Mod Squad? That's you! 
fucking hell. Woo! So that happens. Um, and I just, I want to talk very quickly about the very last scene of this movie because I honestly said out loud, really? As it was, as it was transpiring, which is, the last scene of this movie is our three leads sitting on a standing on a bridge um, and talking about whether or not they're going to keep being a mod squad, I guess. And <laughs> keep being a mod squad. <laughs> <laughs> and they all kind of just sort of shrug and agree to work with the cops. And these this these are the three lines, the three last lines of this movie. Pete. So we're on. Julie, right on. Link, solid. And then the credits are to roll. <laughs> so we're on, right on, solid. See you, see you in, see you in two thousand and three for Mod Squad two. <laughs> like Mod it Squad is too, right on, solid. <laughs> but like. Honestly, could this have been any more phoned in? Could did anyone give a fuck? Yeah. I mean, forget about those three lines being terrible. They're also delivered in the most like, oh my god! All right, here, here. Yeah. I said the line. Can I go home I now? I know. Phil, what do you give this movie? <laughs> All right. So I saw this movie in '99. I saw this in the theater. As I mentioned, I was very bored. I saw it with a friend. It wasn't very good. Uh, I probably would have given it like a 35 back in 99. Like it was so like, I just didn't care. I didn't think about it before this podcast. Um, I'm giving it a 29, but I also think that the podcast has oddly made me like parts of it more. Wow. So I'm back up to a 32. (laughs) Okay. All right. <laughs> that's, that's where, I mean, we're all in the same here, but like, I just, yeah. when we were talking about some of the casting, I'm like, these are fucking good actors. Like I can't, I can't hate on some of these actors. So that's right. Yeah. I'm- so like, uh, I never saw this movie. Well, I would never, I would never do that to myself. Um, <laughs> after watching it, I gave it a 31. So we're right in that ballpark. You know, we're like very, like, like, like a very pointed, like yep. this is not a disaster. Like, just like, like, this is just not a disaster. Like, I didn't watch it angry. I didn't watch it like, like really confused. I just kind of watched, I mean, I was, I was confused about the process. Like I was confused about why you wasted, you know, all of this you were given, but I, it's just like, it is just a movie. Um, I have to go down. Look at me. Furious. I have to go down. I'm not going to go down that much. I'm I'm going to go down to a 25, which is bad. But like yep, yep. it's a C minus, which is what I think this movie is. It's a C minus. I would never tell someone to watch this movie because what? Because there are so many good movies. Watch the so trailer. Many. It's actually a good trailer. Just watch there, the trailer. There's yep. so many good movies out there. Like, don't waste your life on a movie like this. Like I had to. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, as, as far as the, I, I think this might be, if it weren't for the mod squad of it, yes. Um, which is interesting in and of itself, right? It's yep. always interesting for me to see how someone tackles a piece of IP. Mm-hmm. Um, but so if not for the mod squad element of it, I don't think there would have been anything for me to grab to, for me to sink my teeth into. Um, or talk about 
trailer. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, yeah. And, and, and that doesn't make it a, a good movie or a bad movie, or that, that doesn't make it a more interesting thing or, or a less interesting thing in terms of the, the you know the credits to credits content of it. But this is about as plain a movie as we've done. Yeah, um, I think that this think, is just. Yeah, go ahead. Can you think of a plainer movie? Oof. A more plain movie. Um. That's that's a that's a tough question. Um, I don't know that we've done a movie that is this much of a shrug. I think is really what it comes down to, right? Like we we've done movies that are bad that we you know th- your your love stinks and your chill factors where you go like you almost get angry because it feels like an sure. affront to you. Sure. Um, and then we've obviously done phenomenal films. This is a very sort of like okay. Like you didn't need to make this like this. You could have done better. It's disappointing, but like I'm not worked up about it. I'm I'm looking at our list. I'm looking at what we've yeah, done yeah, our, yeah. on on Letterboxd. I mean, some that kind of feel in this vein in terms of like yeah. just there kind of movies that that aren't mm-hmm. quite as just there as this. But um, yeah, interestingly, I think Broke Down Palace is kind of just there. A um, bit, yeah. I think In Dreams is kind of just there. Um, both of those I mean, movies are more interesting than this movie, though. Would you'd, you'd agree both of them are more interesting definitely. than this, right? Definitely. Uh, Music of the Heart, I think, is just there. Ooh. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah. The most yeah. just there movie that is more interesting than this, uh, but, but probably was the, the leader in the clubhouse before this, was Play It to the Bone. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those are all very good examples of movies that, similar to this, where you're just like, you guys were close to doing something interesting here. Like, you were, you were, you could see it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was within your grasp and you, you just whiffed. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think that's kind of what it comes down to for, for a lot of these so, movies. So next week we have your friend coming on for black and white. Oh, great. Kemi's coming on. Kemi, yeah. Kemi Cotino's coming on for black or white. Um, Kemi is a writer, director, actor, producer um she's from uganda uh has like kind of a pretty enormous imprint there uganda uh has come here she writes and step up with me she uh started an episode of little america um incredibly insightful um writer and speaker and it was really interesting having her on to talk about a, a a movie ultimately about race and about, you know, basically white people and black people in New York in 1999, a period where she didn't even live here. But she has a lot of interesting thoughts about race. And um, it's actually, you know, it's weird because it's not a movie that we were like over the top on in <laughs> any way. Um, but it is a movie that that I would suggest giving a watch to before the um, before the podcast, if you're going to listen because this was one of those you, you one yeah, of those really will get it otherwise this this was um, one of those episodes where at the end of it i was just like i don't like this movie but i'm glad it exists and i'm thrilled that i had the conversation and that the movie yeah. sparked that type of conversation yeah uh, it's a very strange film it's a it's a real time capsule relic of like a different time obviously um you know, obviously, James Toback is a problematic human being, um, and we talk about that during uh, during the episode as well. But but to your point, Kenny, I thought that Kemi was not just a tremendous guest, but gave a whole insight to this film and to the sort of the world that it inhabits that I thought was really fascinating. 
Yeah, it, it was a really, really great episode. And yeah, just to reiterate, like it's the only movie I think the, the, the it's the only movie we've done that I would recommend watching as a anthropological piece yes. more than a yes. more than a film. Like there is just something about this that as as misguided as some of it is and as uh as coming from a coming from the you know the perspective of someone who is kind of proven to be not a great guy it does tap into something that was happening in 1999 for good and for ill that um most movies are afraid to talk about uh um, it is i will say this it is a fearless movie that is for sure yeah it is um, and, and that is, uh, that is, it, it's, it, <laughs> I, I have to say this too, for what it's worth, it's a movie and an episode of this podcast that stayed with me as well, where I find mm-hmm. myself thinking about like, this is why we do this podcast, like yeah. to, to unearth weird little movies that didn't get a moment and be able to shine a light on why they were interesting and important and, 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 you know, um, yeah, it's it's a real it's a really interesting film that I highly recommend people check out. Uh, it's streaming on the various uh, websites, but um, check it out and uh, and next week uh, listen to our episode about it. And make sure you watch the right one. There's there's another black and white like TV. Episode. There's the Gina another Gershon, black. I think. Or, yeah, there's like a Gina Gershon like TV movie black or white. So that would be a bad bad one. move. <laughs> All right. Um, well, thank you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe. Thank you to our producers, Ernie and Will. Uh, thank you to Jan for our theme song and our artwork. Thank you to Emilio for our uh, social media. Thanks for Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.